wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth to you.org that's truth number two letter you.org it's time for a brand new series entitled kingdom chronicles we are now in episode number three joining me is my very good friend ross nichols g'day mate hello Jono. how are you today doing very well thank you my friend last week we touched on well you know what we got carried away a little bit with the melchizedek uh topic uh, which is fascinating, and, and really, I mean, you could do a whole series on Melchizedek, probably. Um, and we said to the listeners, listen, dear listeners, we're going to pick up here where we left off, and let's talk a little bit more about this. But what we did instead was we uh, we did a uh, sort of a post-off-air conversation. We recorded that off-air conversation. We turned it into a little bit of a, uh, a program, and we released that as well. So if you want to hear more about Melchizedek, go to that program. Uh, I guess we'll call it, uh, let's see, episode 2B. To be or not to yeah, be? Yeah, look, let me just add something, Jono. What, you, you left this key point out. I predicted <laughs> that when we got off the phone, when we got off of our formal recording, that you would keep me up all night. You didn't <laughs> keep me up all night just because I said, I got to go. But we did get into what I think was a very good discussion and it was very uh, clarifying. And then yeah. you asked me, hey, can we can we post this? And I think it's good. So yeah, maybe that'll help maybe make some sense out of some of that. But it was a fun discussion. Yep. People can't miss it. It's not just an outtakes off of our but I think it's worth listening to. I think it might help. So there we go. So we don't have to jump in we don't have to go there. We can go uh, we can continue on with the Kingdom Chronicles. And what I did want to do uh, was mm-hmm. go to we keep promising that we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 17 and Genesis chapter 17. Can we do Genesis chapter 17? There's a couple of places I want to hit in Genesis I, I think first. So. All right. So let's yep. whip, let's whip through this. So. Uh, Genesis chapter because we've been we keep saying we're going to do it and we don't. So it's a yeah. great place to start. What is the verse in 17? Where are we going to pick up? There are two, two look at verse 6. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are two mentions uh, one is six and one is 16. So just pick them up both. All right. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now, who's the you? This Is this God uh, speaking to Abram? It is. I will yep. make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make great nation, great nations of you mm-hmm. and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant right. between you and me and, and your descendants after you and the generations for everlasting covenant. Uh, I will be God to you and your descendants after you and so on and so forth. Ross. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, that's uh, very interesting. It's one of the promises uh, in Genesis 17. Not only is he going to, you know, he's talked to Abram in Genesis 12. By this point, he is now Avraham, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, Genesis 17 begins when Avram was 99 years old. So this has been quite some time. He was 75 in Genesis 12 when he tells him Lech Lecha and you know, he gives him that great promise, and I'll make you a goy gadol, a great nation. And he doesn't have kids yet. So now in Genesis 17, not only is Avram, uh, later known as Avraham, going to be uh, a goy gadol, but great nations will come from him and kings. So this is mm-hmm. uh, relative to our topic. And then uh, verse 16, uh, talking about his wife, Sarah. Sarai, and verse 15, and God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, you shall not call her Sarai, but you shall call her Sarah. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will rise to nations, give rise to nations, rulers of peoples 
shall come from her. Right. And, well, that's interesting. Now, is that a different word to verse 6? Because in my translation, it says kings of peoples shall be from her. I am looking, I was reading from the JPS, but as always, I have my faithful Corin, which I tend to like better. Can it we, seems to be more let's literal. Let's just take a yeah. quick break and just let, elaborate on what you just said, because quite often uh, people mm-hmm. ask the question, what translation do you prefer? Go for it. Right. I particularly like as close as I can get it to the Hebrew. If my Hebrew were better, Jono, I would read only Hebrew, rock ivrit. Um, but because I love the Bible so much, I read so much and study so much that I generally uh, I rely on an English translation. Koren, K-O-R-E-N, is a uh, publisher in Jerusalem, and I find that their Hebrew and English version of the Tanakh it's known as the Jerusalem Bible. Now, people have to be careful, Jono, mm-hmm. because there's also a Catholic edition. This is a Tanakh only, uh, the Koran Tanakh. Right. Uh, it's put out by Koran Publishers in Jerusalem. I love it for a couple of reasons, Jono. Real quickly, I think the Hebrew is very literal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, very close, almost without exception to the Hebrew text. It's mm-hmm. even in places rough translation. Uh, you know, it sounds rough to the English ear. Mm. The other thing is, is that it contains transliteration. In other words, uh, whereas some uh, names are anglicized in a lot of English translation, this retains place names, people names in their more original form. Right. Egypt is called Mitzrayim mm-hmm. and so forth. Sure. And then one final thing that I love about it is it preserves what are called the open and closed spaces Within the Hebrew Bible, obviously, when it was originally penned, they didn't have chapter and verses. That's a much later innovation. In fact, right. it comes from Christian Bibles. Yes. But this retains, although it contains the Hebrew chapter and verses, it also contains white spaces in the text. And uh, we'll be talking about that throughout the program. Be. But let's just say that these are natural, I believe, uh, somewhat original yes. breaks of the text, and they're very important for context. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, now, the, the next passage that I want – oh, by the way, you've got a, a fancy Wait. customized version, don't you? I do. I sent mine off uh, to a wonderful Bible uh, group that does uh, recovering, and it's uh, Leonard's Books, and maybe we can put the post there. But I – or the link there, but I, I generally send mine off and get a beautiful, beautiful leather covering. Now, you asked me a question, though, and before we jump off of it, just to verify or validate, in the Hebrew, in Genesis 17, 6, oh, yeah. it says, Umlachim, uh, and kings from you, they will go forth. And then in verse 16, um, it uses the the same, except it says, Malke Amim, uh, kings of peoples, mm-hmm. uh, from her they will go forth. So, yes, it is the root word melech in both of those instances. JPS is more fluid, a little bit more, uh, what would you say, an English equivalent, like a living, what's the word? Dynamic. Kind of a dynamic. Yeah, yeah it's not literal. No, so, as opposed to a formal translation. That yeah, up. that's right. Formal and dynamic. I prefer the formal translation. So, can I jump to chapter 49? Okay. This is um, uh, Jacob's last words to his sons. Uh, it's kind of mysterious. Uh, Jacob called his sons and said, 
gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. And we're going to jump to verse 8, where he makes reference to Judah. Judah, you are Mm -hmm. he whom your brothers shall praise. Uh, Your Mm -hmm. hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. Uh, He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? And this is the key verse. The scepter Mm -hmm. shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That's very mysterious. Mm. Your thoughts? It is. Yeah, first of all, this is very mysterious, as you say. It's difficult. It's presented difficulties to many, many people far more intelligent than I. But notice in the first verse, and Yaakov called to, of chapter 49, Hmm. Yaakov calls to his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you, uh, akharit hayamim ba'akharit, in the last days. Hmm. So many commentators look at this as, yes, it is the last words of Jacob to his sons, if you will. It contains what we would call the blessings of the tribes. Do you think, and I don't know, but many people look at this phrase in the last days as indicating that what follows could be prophetic. What do you think about that? I, I'm, I'm not willing to go there concretely. Uh, and the reason why I say okay. that is because it's so nebulous. Everything that is said here is just so um, – uh, it's not clear. For example, I mean, let me look at verse 20. I like this one. <laughs> Asher. Okay. Right. Uh, Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall read royal dainties. Um, okay, right. that's a nice prophecy. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. nice. I know. So I mean, I'm just yeah, saying. Some, <laughs> some definitely get the better end of the stick, in as you might say. Yeah. Um, you know, but, I, but this, t- yeah, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. I'm just saying to to sort of um, to pin uh, prophet to pin this as prophecy leaves wide open um, speculation, uh, and mm-hmm. and and you know you can come to all sorts of different conclusions, and that's why I think maybe I mentioned last week. I'm not sure, but. Uh, the understanding of verse 10 here is that uh, the king of Israel shall be from the tribe of Judah. I think that's retrospective, I would, I, I, I tend to think, um, because that is eventually where the kingship ended up with, with David and Solomon mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But before that, as we mentioned in episode one, uh, we had Avimelech of Manasseh, we had Saul of Benjamin and, and so specifically appointed by God. Your thoughts? Yeah, and and I agree with that. And also to your other point about this, the language here, people tend to love uh, an empty space. They get to fill in the blank yeah. as they choose, and it it really opens up a whole lot. But this particular passage about Judah, um, it can be read different ways. For instance, if we just look at the phrase. Uh, my translation, the Quran says, the staff shall not depart from Judah, nor the scepter from between his feet until Shiloh come and the obedience of the people be his. Mm. Now, that phrase in and of itself, people run a thousand different directions with. But if we look at it uh, in the Hebrew, lo yasur shevet mihuda, it will not depart Shevet can be a staff or a tribe. Um, in other words, I'm not going to necessarily jump in and say what I think it means because, you know, there are so many different opinions. Hmm. 
But does it mean uh, a tribe will not depart uh, or a staff or, or how do you translate mm. that? And I know there's a lot in rabbinic literature on this. Yeah. It is considered, uh, as you know, it's taken to be messianic. Use the word messianic in a very broad sense. Uh, in other words, people say some suggest that Shiloh is a reference to the Messiah. The phrase is Adi Yavo Shiloh. But what does that mean? Until he comes to Shiloh, is it a reference to the place? Is it is Shiloh a personal name? Who I mean, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I'm, so I'm not so sure. Uh, and I was going to ask you, do you, I'm not so sure this points to the monarchy, though it could. But especially this phrase here, I know in Genesis 17 there is a clear reference. That through Abraham and Sarah, kings will come forth. Mm, yeah. So there is a, a a very clear statement, clear statement there that a monarchy will emerge. Let's say from the patriarch and matriarch. Mm. Is that fair? I think that's fair. In Genesis 17. Yeah. Here, I, I don't know what this means. This is sort of uh, yeah, a little it, it, bit more difficult. It can mean a difficult. lot of things, but it's it's necessary to read because mm. a lot of people uh, have the understanding that this is. Um, the designation of kingship to Judah, uh, yeah, maybe. But uh, so, so we yep. read it out. But absolutely, certainly, uh, Genesis seventeen makes it very, very clear that kings shall come from Abraham and Sarah. Uh, it's interesting, though, because we have to couple that with the facts, the established fact that that, that I think we talked about in the first program uh, that it was something that was not approved of by God. Now, right. I, a couple of things that I want to highlight. Uh, that okay. we've already touched on, and that is the the fact that uh, yeah we talked about Abimelech in in uh, Judges chapter eight was it? Um, uh, the, yep, the first eight, king nine. of yep. Israel of sorts. We talked about Shaul, mm. um, the the, uh, the the next appointed king, anointed by Samuel, uh, um, given permission, if you like, by God to do so, but uh, he was not happy about it, and he let the people know he was not mm-hmm. happy about it. They, they kind of understood in the end, oh, we have sinned, you know, we've done something wrong here. Right. Uh, in all of these passages and all the investigation that we've done so far, there is something that has not been mentioned, something that has not been referenced that you would have thought it would be. And that is exactly that is Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter mm-hmm. 17 is, uh, how would we call it? This is the Torah of the king. Can we say that? I love it. I love it. That's a perfect phrase. Now, as you go there, because we want to go there, you mentioned in 1 Samuel 8, when the people come to Samuel, remember, one of the things that they say is going to point us directly to Deuteronomy 17. It's a phrase that occurs twice Mm -hmm. in uh, Deuteronomy 17. And I just, can I highlight those two verses? Yeah, go for it. Okay, 1 Samuel 8. In verse 4, now this is the beginning of the white space, mm-hmm. the break in the text. Yep. It says then in verse 4, 1 Samuel 8, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Shmuel, Samuel, to Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons walk not in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Okay. All right. That phrase, like all the nations. And then I think it's verse 20. Let me see. I have it marked. Uh, in verse 20, uh, no, this is what the people said. In other words, uh, in verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel 
And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. Mm That phrase is going to take us into, as you call it, the Torah of the king, Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. Yeah. I was going to say, but to your point, don't you expect to find somewhere in this text, it seems like someone would have raised their hand and said, hey, uh, Samuel, I understand that you're angry and it seems that God is angry, But. but didn't he tell us? In Deuteronomy 17, yeah, that we can have it. I mean, wouldn't you expect you, you would, it, you would like it, it is as if it is as if that all the goings on in regards to kingship up to this point, uh, nobody has read this passage, nobody's read Deuteronomy chapter 17 in the Torah, no one it's is like aware nobody of it. Knows about it. It's like no one knows yeah. about it, uh, and you have to ask yourself why. Can I, before we continue, actually, can I go back to something else that you said? I think it might have been in the first. Uh, episode, uh, you made mention, right. I think this might have been uh, Genesis chapter 14, when we were talking about uh, the kings uh, in the surrounding nations, um, uh-huh. and there is a, a mention, a phrase that is mentioned there, as it is this day. Is, am, am, am I recalling that correctly? What Do you remember what verse that is? Oh, actually, you know what? It might have been another list of kings, because if I remember correctly, it was talking about Edomite kings. Um, oh, that's Genesis 36. Ah, okay. In Genesis 36, it does mention that. Because you made a point, and we kind of brushed over it, but uh, it's a good point. It's one worth mentioning again. Um, the verse in question in 36? 31 in Genesis 36. These are the kings that reigned in the land at Edom before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. Before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. And your point about that, mm-hmm. which is a very valid point, is that how is this in the narrative in Genesis 36 when the Torah, in other words, the Torah is written and completed long before this would ever even come up. So it's called an anachronism. It seems to be something which was written later than the period of the text itself. Does that make sense? Sure. So would that be uh, perhaps referred to as, in some cases, a scribal update or uh, an added piece of commentary for the sake of clarification? Uh, Maybe it's geographical uh, or, or um, just pertaining to to the common data as which you know that commentary is is written, uh, or in fact an addition uh, inserted mm-hmm. into the text. Uh, yeah, and we have, and like you said, we have plenty of examples like this, particularly as you mentioned in place names. Uh, this particular place is called this, but it was called this, you know, another time. In other words, there are things that are a classic example is the mention of Ramesses um, in the time of the children of Israel's sojourn in Egypt. Mm-hmm. The place was not called Ramesses at that time, but it was later called Ramesses. See, right. Give us one more example, just one more example of, of something that clearly obviously wasn't i'm going to say i'm going to say it even clearer wasn't written by moses that appears in the body of the first five books a very good example and it's picked up by the rabbis is towards the end of deuteronomy we have this interesting uh, passage that refers to the death of moses now one of the things that really stands out and this isn't just among critical academic scholars 
when you read the text, it talks about, and Moses went up into the mountain and he died and God buried him. I'm paraphrasing. That, when most people read that, they say, you know, who wrote this? Ibn Ezra, a great scholar uh, Mm -hmm. from a long time ago, commented on this in his commentary. And most people, even Orthodox people, will suggest there are two views. One is that Moses did write about his own death and burial. Those are the what we would call the extreme maximalist approach, mm-hmm. where someone says that Moses wrote it all. But many people have come to suggest that Joshua wrote those final words. Uh, he wrote what are called the Twelve. It, it's almost hinted at in the writings of Ibn Ezra and others who come later. They just suggest, hey, look, mm-hmm. I know this is controversial, but... And we're going to get into some of this, Jonas. So even though it's controversial, even in today's topic, we're going to get into this. And I think I can show where Joshua did update, let's say, the Torah of Moses. So we'll talk about that in just a little while. Just a little while. We're going to a break right now. People are listening going, well, what's this got to do with Deuteronomy chapter 17? We'll be into that right after these messages. Don't go away. Another thing, we were talking, you and I, Toby, we were talking to uh, uh, Ross Nichols earlier in the week. We are so excited. Why are we excited, my friend? Because we're going to be going on a tour through the Bible, and we're going to walk literally in the footsteps of where the prophets preached. We're going, this coming November, with the help of God, uh, we're going on a tour of folks from around the world coming together in the Holy Land to explore the state, the land of Israel through scriptures. Bring your Bibles with you because we're going to the holiest places on earth. We're coming, we're going to explore and probe the places where heaven touched earth. Nothing makes your Bible come to life, does it? Nothing makes your Bible come to life like walking through the land and being where it happened. You know, I'll say this. I'll say this to you, the listener who's never been to Israel that prepare yourself because you will not be the same person when mm. you leave. That means realize that when you get on that flight from wherever you're coming from, whether you're coming from Melbourne or you're coming from New York, realize that when you when you return back to that airport, uh, you will be a different person. So that mm. old you will be the last of vestige of it because the transition, the transfer, the the complete spiritual transition that occurs when you step foot in the Holy Land will be something remarkable. And it will be life-changing without a doubt. It's going to, it's very exciting. You can get the details on truthtoyou.org. Go to the website and you'll see Israel Tour. Just click on that and the necessary details are there, my friend. And we are so excited. Ross is very excited. It's November. You've got plenty of time, folks, but you need to. There's only limited seats available, so you need to secure your place with a deposit and the details are there. Welcome back to your listeners. You are listening to the Kingdom Chronicles with myself, John Ovandor, and Ross Nichols of UnitedIsrael.org. We went to the break talking about, uh, you know, additions to the to, to mm-hmm. the Torah, uh, scribal updates, additional commentary, date sensitive 
uh, material. Yep, an anachronism. An anachronism. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at. And the question is, why are we using this in regards to Deuteronomy chapter 17? We've finally arrived there. We're about to read it. But before I do read it, Ross, you mentioned before about white spaces. Just just give us a comment in regards to, to Deuteronomy chapter 17 from verse 14 to uh, to verse, what is this, up to verse 20? Yeah, verse 20. Now, it's interesting. Now, most people in, in an English Bible or even in a Hebrew Bible with chapter numbers, they would pick up Deuteronomy 17 and read. A lot of people do this where they don't really study the context. You don't know where it breaks. You, you sort of look at 17 as a, a singular unit, like here it is, here's chapter 17. But Deuteronomy 17 is very interesting because if you follow the white spaces, beginning in verse 2, there are certain uh, laws and so forth. Uh, by the time you get to verse 8, there's a major break in the text. And it's talking about if there arise a matter too hard for you in judgment, you know, and so forth, you're going to bring this issue to the beast, the Levites, right? Mm-hmm. And they're going to tell you what to do. Now, this continues all the way through verse 13 when it talks about bringing these different matters to the priest that stands to minister there before Hashem. Mm-hmm. When you get to verse 14, there's a white space in the text, and there is a, a section of text that runs from 14 to 20, this talks about the king. Right. And then when you get to chapter 18, verse 1, after the white space, it jumps right back contextually into the, the subject of the priest and the Levites. Mm. So here we have an interesting text, which is separated by white spaces, which occurs in the midst of a subject matter dealing with the priest's the Levites, mm-hmm. and it deals with the king. Read it. Je- uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 14. 20. Let's look at this. When you come, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, and you say, I just want to emphasize that, mm-hmm. and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations, like all the nations that are around That's me. Our phrase. That's our phrase. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not, uh, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return mm-hmm. to Egypt to multiply horses, horses for the Lord your God. Said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all of his days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law, and the statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, from the right hand or to the left, 
and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom and he uh, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Ross. Mm, yes. First of all, a couple of general comments. So here we have the the law, the Torah of the king. And if you compare it with other ancient Near East kingdoms, or if you just think king in general, this is a very interesting text, not only in the ancient world, but bring it into the modern world. I mean, here's a king... And he can't multiply horses. He can't multiply women. He can't multiply money. What's the fun in being a king if, you know what I'm saying? He cannot lift himself He cannot lift himself above his brethren. Uh, he's one of them, right? right? That's, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the whole point. And, and further it says, not only that, but he's going to write a copy of HaTorah Hazot, this Torah, He's going to read from it all the days of his life so that he doesn't go astray. Now, I want to take a deep breath and and ask the question, Jono. Hmm. Given that this is in the Torah, why does it never occur in 1 Samuel, you know, like we said? I mean, somebody should have said, well, you know, the Torah says it. And, and, And Samuel doesn't say, look, okay, Saul, here's a copy of the Torah. You're going to write a copy of this and read from it all the days of your life. Uh, it just never occurs. It never occurs. And so that is strange to me. Mm. Uh, it's very strange. Now, typically, uh, the fundamentalist view is that the entire Torah from Genesis 1-1 through Deuteronomy 34-12 is written by the hand of Moses. Now, you know this. Our listeners may not. I'm currently writing a book uh, that asks this question, very controversial question, but I do it in the title of the book is called Finding the Hand of Moses. Mm-hmm. Now, the first question is, uh, and this is up to discussion, what do you think that the king is going to write for himself and read all the days of his life? Just a question. You mean what is, is it going to be? What what's is, he going to write when it says this Torah? Does it mean yeah. Genesis 1 1 through Deuteronomy 34 12? Or does it mean uh, the, the you know the majority of the body of Deuteronomy? Or does it even possibly mean just this Torah uh, pertaining to the Torah of the King? I, I don't know. What's your thoughts? Very interesting. There, those three views are the options that are on the table. Number one, he is to write a copy of all the Torah, Genesis one one through Deuteronomy thirty four twelve. The other view is that he's to write a copy of. Uh, what is, let's call, a form of the book of Deuteronomy. And then the final view is that it's just this Torah, because a lot of times we refer to, when we say the Torah, we mean the full Torah, the five Hmm. books of Moses, as they're called. But you and I both know, and most of our listeners know, that there are specific Torahs, the Torah of the leper, the Torah of the priest, the Torah, you know, so forth and so on. So it could be any one of those, but the question that we're dealing with now is why does no one mention any of this? The only connection that we have between this text and 1 Samuel 8 and following is a reference that the people are going to ask for a king like the nations. nations. Yeah, that's it. And so it's it's glaringly absent 
uh, from the body of First Samuel, uh, and 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 so the question has to be asked: Why? Why is that the case? So, well, then there's there's one. Uh, well, well, before we jump a little bit further, let me ask another question. Go on. How many do we have any examples in the Tanakh where a king is said to have written a copy of this Torah and read from it? And if if we don't have that reference, which by the way there isn't one. <laughs> Would you think, if you look at the good kings, because we have plenty of examples of bad kings, but mm. if we have some good kings, do they fit the bill um, with Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20? Do, How about... Yeah, well, I was just going to say, does, does Josiah tick this box in any way? I think Josiah comes very close, but that's a that's a very good story that we'll touch on. Mm. But I, I would let's start with David. David is considered a man after God's own heart. Sure. David, for instance, uh, D- David and uh, Solomon, do they multiply wives? Oh, yeah. Well, Solomon, I mean, that, that is uh, what is recorded to have led him astray. Well, I, I'm wondering how to bring this in, but there is an interesting Dead Sea Scroll. Um, and, and I think this is a perfect entry point for this. There is a reference... And and I tell you how I came upon this when I was researching my book. You know, I have a good friend who's a biblical scholar, Dr. James Tabor. I was mm. in the desert. I was working on my book uh, in the early stages, <clears throat> and he asked me. He said, "How much study have you done of the Temple Scroll and the Dead Sea Scrolls in general?" And I said, "Well, I've read them. You know, years ago I read them. I haven't spent as much time in them recently." And he said, "Well, you need to get." Yigal Yadin's Yigal Yadin's work on the Temple Scroll, mm-hmm. and the Temple Scroll has a lot on it about the king. In fact, uh, the Temple Scroll, just to give a quick rundown of this, because this gets into our topic, discovered in 1956. It's the longest of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's 28 feet in length. Now, some of it's damaged, and they can't discern what it says. But it depends heavily on the book of Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it uses the first person in a lot of the text, uh, which which is also a feature of Deuteronomy and solely Deuteronomy. It's dated to about the second century BCE, and important to our subject, it contains what's called a section that we would call the Statutes of the King. It kicks off with Deuteronomy 17, 14, and runs for like four columns of this scroll. Right. Now, I, I was I got this book, and I, had, uh, I was looking through it, and I got to this particular paragraph. And, and listen to this. This is Yigal Yadin's commentary. This was written by a scribe of the Qumran community, we assume, hmm. and it says this. As to the prince, it is written, he shall not multiply wives unto himself. Mm -hmm. Obviously a reference to Deuteronomy 17, 17. And it it picks up, but David read not in the book of the law that was sealed, which was in the ark, for it was not opened in Israel from the day of the death of Eleazar and Joshua and the elders who worshipped Ashtoreth, uh, Ashtoreth, it was hidden and was not discovered until Zadok arose. Now, the reason I bring that up is this interesting passage, they're asking a question. Why does David have more than one wife? Because sure. the Qumran community is saying 
if he had the Torah of the king, i.e. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, he would have known not to multiply wives to himself. And Solomon, I mean, run down the list. So Solomon it, has so many wives. He, oh, well, I mean, good heavens, something like a, a thousand if you include the concubines. Yes. Uh, he was a busy yep. guy. Um, just, just on that note, though, uh, there's, there's, a, there's an odd thing about this particular instruction, and that is that it's, it's vague. How many are too many? How much gold is too much gold? How many horses are too many horses? Um, it's mm -hmm. open-ended. It's, it's uh, speculative, I suppose. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, this particular passage points at a couple of different things. And, and if, if I can, um, you know, if you look at, go with me to Deuteronomy 31, Jonah. Mm -hmm. um, Deuteronomy 31, this is an interesting passage to me. Um, in verse 9, um, and Moses, Deuteronomy 31, 9, Moses wrote this Torah and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, hmm. and to all the elders of Israel. So here we are in Deuteronomy 31, Moses writes the Torah and hands it to the priest. Right. Now, we still have a few chapters left in Deuteronomy, right? Now, sure. skip down to verse 24. Um, in verse 24... And it came to pass, when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this Torah in a book or a scroll, hmm. until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the Torah and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. Mm -hmm. I want to highlight this. In Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26, Moses completes the writing of the Torah, rolls it up, hands it to the Levites with the instruction to put it in the side of the ark. Now, this Dead Sea Scroll, it's, it's actually in a commentary on the Temple Scroll, but it's quoting a passage from what's called the Damascus document, where they're asking this question— how is it that David has more than one wife? Mm -hmm. Their point is that he had not read the scroll, which was sealed and stored in the ark, and it had been there since the days of Eleazar and Joshua's death. Now, one and, other until, point, and then we'll... And if I remember correctly, you said until uh, Zadok uh, came to power, and he, he was appointed as the high priest right. by Solomon. Okay, continue. And, okay, so look at Joshua 24. Uh, just to pick this up, mm -hmm. uh, I want to read one passage here uh, in verse 26 of Joshua 24. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the Torah of God and took a great stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary mm -hmm. of the Lord. So this in and of itself is an interesting thing. We may have to go to another uh, class to get into all this, but it says he writes something mm. in the book of the Torah of God. Now, remember, the rabbis suggest, some rabbis suggest, Ibn Ezra and others, that uh, Joshua penned the final portions of Deuteronomy sure. because it says, you know, Moses died and was buried and so forth. Now, the context of the Dead Sea Scroll I quoted, the passage from the Damascus document, says that it had been sealed, it had not been opened in Israel from the day of the death of Eleazar and Joshua. 
Here in Joshua 24, Joshua adds something to the Torah of God, and then the remaining passages, if you look at 29, Mm -hmm. verse 29, it came to pass after these things, that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old, and he gets buried. Verse 33, and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in the hill of Pinchas, his son. So the context is that Joshua is the last one, according to this, that wrote in this book, Mm -hmm. and it's in the context of the death of both Joshua and Eleazar. So it's sealed. It's sealed. And And it's it's placed. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to ask you. It's placed. Now, uh, there are some that say it's placed beside or or placed inside. What what have you got? In in Hebrew, it's, uh, let me look real quick. I think it's mitzad, in the side of the the ark. Very interesting passage. Hmm. Now, I'm looking at the English of the Dead Sea Scroll. It says, though, that this was sealed and remained sealed and hidden. It was hidden and not discovered until Zadok arose. Now, an interesting thing about this is that um, uh, Zadok could be referring to um, Hilkiah, who is the high priest at the time of a great discovery in the days of Josiah, which you mentioned. Mm -hmm. In 1 Chronicles 5, 38 and 39, it says that Hilkiah is a grandson of Zadok. Now, you and I have discussed the emergence of Zadok almost out of nowhere. We have Abiatar, and then uh, in the days of David, we had these sort of a split priesthood almost, Mm. uh, Abiatar and Zadok. Now, the interesting thing is, if we can at least entertain the idea that someone wrote in the Torah other than Moses, right? Mm-hmm. If if Joshua wrote in the Torah of Moses, or if some of these updates took place uh, where we have anachronisms and so forth that occur in the text, I have a question. Now, did you... I think you were going to ask me about 1 Samuel chapter 10. I, yeah, that's right. And and this may be a solution to the problem, and I think it's a compelling one, and certainly one worth presenting to the people. There's so much, there's so much that I want to add to what you just said, um, and I'm just. You want to do it now? Well, you can, I, you can do it now. Well, here, I, I mean, okay, can I can I do this? I mean, there really is so much that I want to add, sure. and I, I I think maybe a lot of it will have to wait until uh, uh, episode four because. Chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, uh, the the Torah of the King has so much in it. Um, but before we get there, you were just reading from chapter 31. And uh, and this is a question that uh, uh, you and I have talked about before. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to read it again. Uh, it was from verse 24, okay. right? Yes. Okay, so when it was that Moses had completed writing the work, um, uh, writing the words of this law in a book, uh, they were finished, and so Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant uh, of the Lord, saying, Take the book of the law and put it uh, you know, inside the Ark, uh, in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. Here it is. The question is, who, which Levites? Because it's not just any Levite that does that. Who handles the Ark of the Covenant? And I'm really just sort of um, thinking out loud, but in Numbers chapter 3, verses 29, it says, The families of the children of Korah, uh, were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle and the leaders of the father's houses and of the families of the Koratites. Koratites? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It says their, um, their duty included the ark, the table, uh, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary which, uh, with which they ministered, the screen, and all the work relating to them. So clearly 
uh, the Levites that Moses handed this to to place uh, in the side of the ark would have been the uh, Korahites. Would that be fair? Uh, so that's a good point. So it's something, if people know their scriptures, they know that it's a specific reference here. It's not just to Levites in general, but there was a, what you're suggesting is there is a specific group who is tasked with handling uh, the holy furniture, and in this case, the ark, and and that's where this scroll goes. Yeah, different different uh, Levites have different uh, roles. Um, so the reason why I bring that up uh, is because what I find really interesting is Psalm forty five. Do you mind if I read Psalm forty five? Oh, jump in. Okay. Uh, yeah. it, it, the uh, subscription is uh, for the leader on uh, what's this Shoshanim of the Korahites, okay. a maskil, a love song. Uh, and it says now. Now the reason why I'm reading this out is because again, it says he, you know, the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The instruction is that the king should not elevate himself among his uh, above his brethren. He should not have too many wives. He should not have too much gold and silver. He should not amass um, uh, such wealth and horses, multiply horses, and so so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, my, this is real buttering up if ever I've read it. My heart is astir with gracious words. I speak my poem to a king. My tongue is the pen of an expert scribe. You, you are fairer than all men. Uh, Your speech Mm -hmm. is endowed with grace. Rightly has God given you an eternal blessing. Gird your sword upon your your thigh. O hero, in your splendor and glory, in your glory, uh, win success. Ride on the cause of truth and meekness uh, and right, and let your right hand lead you to awesome deeds. Your arrows sharpened, Mm. Pierce the breasts of the of the king's enemies. Peoples fall at your feet. Uh, your divine throne. Now that's fascinating, right there. Your divine throne. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, maybe you want to check the Hebrew for me while I'm reading this. Your divine throne. I think that is. Um, I think that the word Elohim is in there. Uh, is everlasting. Your royal scepter is a scepter of equality. There's the scepter. Uh, you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Rightly, God, your God has uh, chosen to anoint you with oil of gladness over your peers. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From, what's this, ivory palaces, lutes entertain you. Royal princesses are your favorites. <laughs> okay. mm. And it goes on to say, the consort stands at your right hand, decked in gold of opera. And it goes on, it talks about the, the princesses and, uh, you know, how they arouse the king with their beauty and so on and so forth, uh, that they are embroidered with golden mountings, um, led inside to the king, maidens on her train, her companions are presented to you. Uh, they are led in with joy and gladness. They they enter the palace of the king. Sons will succeed your ancestors. You will appoint them princes over the land. Uh, I I commemorate your fame for your generations, so the people will praise you forever and ever again. Kind of seems like they're not entirely aware of the law of the king, Ross. Do you think perhaps? Interesting. No, it, it is interesting. And and to bring up the fact that the sons of Korah. Um, remember, the sons of Korah, their cousins, Korah is is basically a cousin of uh, Miriam and Aaron and Moses. And remember the rebellion of Korah um, from the book of Numbers? Mm-hmm. This this group is descended from Korah in, in the Hebrew Bible. And so it's interesting that when the ground opens up and so forth, because Korah assumed too much, he tried to take over. They tried to usurp. They wanted the priesthood. 
uh, remember the ground opens up, but it it mentions specifically in the book of Numbers, but that the sons of Korah didn't die in this. Mm-hmm. And later we have these psalms. There are a series of psalms. I believe it's eleven that are attributed to the sons of Korah. And here this one has plenty of references to uh, the king. And and so as it ties in with our particular class, very interesting uh, connection there Just with saying. our sons of Korah. Just saying, on the surface, it's, a, it's an interesting observation, at least in my mind. Uh, so I've taken us down a rabbit trail. I think we need to come back because we were about to get to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Shall I read from verse 25, Ross? Uh, yes, and just remember, as as you read this, the listeners should remember that this is after they've already been told, look, this is not what God wants. God says, you've rejected me. It's considered wicked. It's so forth and so on. And then it says in verse 25. It says, then Samuel explains to the people the behavior of loyalty, of royalty, rather, <laughs> the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent the people away, every man to his house. And uh, Saul also went home to Gibeah. Gibeah? Is that how I pronounce that? Mm-hmm. Gibeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, valiant men went with him, uh, whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presence, uh, but, but Saul held his peace. Now, I want to come back to that, but the important part is um, that, that Samuel wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord, Ross. Yeah, it's, th- this particular passage is very interesting because it, 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 well, for a couple of reasons. One, it doesn't say in a book. It says in the scroll, mm-hmm. right? It says, uh, and Samuel spoke to the people, um, basically concerning the mishpat, uh, which is generally translated the justice or judgment of the kingdom, mm-hmm. Lucha, and he wrote it in the scroll and caused it to rest before Jehovah. So the question becomes, and this is just a question, and I understand that it might be controversial, but because Samuel was told, listen, you need to warn the people about the king, because remember, they act like they know nothing about a Torah of the king. Mm -hmm. Samuel doesn't bring it up, and he's officiating as, you know, uh, someone in, in God's presence. We read this throughout the book of Samuel. And he doesn't reference it either. But then God says to warn the people about the king, basically, look, go ahead and give them what they asked for, but you need to tell them that. And then this passage shows up. The question becomes, could it be, given what we've discussed thus far, that Samuel is actually the author with a sanction from heaven to record in the scroll. Now, the reason I'm, I'm associating this with the scroll is because notice where it's placed. And not only is he to, to write this in the scroll, but he puts it, uh, lays it up before the Lord. What does that mean? Mm. How is that phrase used? Could it be? Well, listen, I know, I know it's controversial. I know you say it's controversial, but I have to say I, I find this, uh, and, I, and, I'm, and many may find it more compelling than controversial. I don't know that it has to be controversial. Uh, we certainly mm-hmm. see here in, in Samuel chapter 10 that uh, Samuel did write down uh, the, the behavior of royalty and wrote it in, a, in the book, it's interesting because in this translation it, has a, it says a, 
uh, but in fact right. the the scroll and laid it up before the Lord. Uh, again, I find it compelling, and, and and it is a solution to the problem. The question of why hasn't this passage, uh, Deuteronomy chapter seventeen, why has it not been brought up in all of this that we've uh, touched on that that precedes it? Right, and and just to sort of underscore that. It's not brought up by the people. The people don't say, hey, look, we've got this Torah that says we can ask for a king when we get in, the, and here we are, and we're asking for it. Nor does Samuel say, well, you know, it does say in the Torah that you can request a king like the nations, and here you are asking for it, and I'm the priest. And uh, But rather, the opposite is the, uh, the way that hmm. the story goes. He, he tells them, uh, you've rejected God. They never make an appeal to the Torah. It seems logical to me that after this event, they've been duly warned. They say, give us the king like the nations. And here it seems that Samuel is writing this out and he places it in the scroll and he puts it before the Lord, which Mm. is uh, a text that's used countless times in the Torah to indicate in the holiest of the precincts this is a very interesting passage to me. Yeah, yeah, very compelling. Uh, some parting comments here, Ross. Uh, verse 27, as I read, um, but some rebels said. Now, there are people here who are referred to as rebels. That's interesting considering that we know that the asking for a king like the nations was a wicked thing. Uh, that's what, what God mm-hmm. refers to it uh, as, a, as a wicked thing. It was wickedness. And yet we have rebels that are saying, how can this man save us? It would appear that these particular rebels were pro give us a king like the nations they just weren't so keen on it being Saul for whatever reason perhaps we could say they had hmm. yeah, perhaps we could say that they had Saul's arrangement syndrome Ross <laughs> <laughs> you think maybe they they wanted a king but not that king just so on that these one. people yeah. were marching marching through the towns going not my king not my not king, my king. <laughs> Right. I got, we could I got have you. some fun with that. Now, listen, we've run out of time. We do have to go. Uh, there is so much more that uh, I want to comment on in regards to Deuteronomy chapter 17, but we're going to have to pick up there when we get back next week. Is there any other uh, parting comments, Russ, that you want to leave us with? No, I think we've done enough for one week. I think this is something we want people to think. We want people to engage. Hey, Look, people can leave their comments. They can offer suggestions and and so forth on our Facebook Please group. Do. And we want to engage the listeners. We absolutely we, do. So we do. Uh, think so about this. Join the, the Kingdom Chronicles. You, you'll find it. There's a group on on Facebook. We would love for you to join. There's even a page. You can even leave comments there. You can leave them on on Truth to You. You can leave a comment. In fact, we had a comment. We had a comment, Frost. You want to hear what it says? We did. We, we yeah, we read it. I'm going to read wait, it. Wait, wait, wait. Is it good? I'm just going to read it to you. Maybe we'll touch on it next week. This is from Carlo. I think I think Carlo is the new uh, official Truth To You critic. So g'day to Carlo. Uh, he, he's been around for a while, and um, he likes to sort of troll me a little bit, but in a nice way. And uh, I welcome yeah. that. Uh, Carlo says, A king and a kingdom rejected by the people of God. They chose Saul, a picture of the Antichrist. Okay, thanks, Carlo. We'll we'll get into that next week as well. And until then, dear listeners, have a great week. UnitedIsrael.org, UnitedIsrael.org is the website of United Israel World Union, of which Ross is a vice president. What's happening there, Ross? 
I'll tell you, Jono, the most exciting things are going on at United Israel, chief of which is that every Saturday morning, every Shabbat at Mm -hmm. 1030 a.m. Central Standard Time, every Saturday morning at 1030, I teach for about an hour of whatever topic I feel uh, inspired to teach on. Now, this is on Facebook, on the United Israel Facebook page. And it's also live streamed on YouTube for those fine friends in other parts of the world that just the timing doesn't work out. These are archived on our website, on YouTube and our Facebook page. So I just want to invite people to join us. United Israel. Coming up this November, dear listeners, the Tanakh Tour, the annual Tanakh Tour with myself, Ross Nichols and Rabbi Tovia Singer. If you want to join us, you can. They you better do be it quick. quick. You better do it quick. Jump on it quick. Really, really quick. Uh, there's a couple of places left and we would love to have you join us, dear listeners. And who wouldn't want to go, Jono? Think about it. Being in Israel for nine days with you, me, Rabbi Singer, literally you're walking out the pages of the Bible. Who wouldn't want to do that? Simply go to truthtoyou.org. There's space left on the Tanakh Tour. We would love for you to come with us. 